You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we're grateful that you and your mercies have brought us together again on this Lord's Day, and thank you for the good word that we heard from Corinthians today from our brother Zach, and thank you, Lord, for feeding us in the holy mysteries of the table and reminding us that our story Our narrative is caught up in something much grander, a cosmic mystery that you have set your affections, Lord, on the world that you've created to redeem it for yourself. And I pray that you will will give us that grace to see our lives in accord with that truth. And I pray this morning for the teacher and for those who are here to listen, that you will open our hearts and our minds to understand what what it is we're engaging. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't normally do... Um, book blurby kind of things, but um, if you're interested in a good secondary source on kings, um, I want—I brought a book today to show you um, by Peter Lightheart, um, and it's a commentary on First and Second Kings. And honestly, uh, Lightheart, L-E-I-T-H-A-R-T. Peter actually lives in Birmingham. Um, and it's the Brazos Theological Commentary on First and Second Kings. I'll have it up here after class if you want to take a look at it. Um, this is, uh, co- I just published a commentary this summer, so I can say this with all honesty. Commentaries are boring. Right? It's like, I mean, it's like I, if, if you want to go to sleep, like I'll give you my commentary and say, if you have insomnia, here's a cure for you right here. Um, so just the nature of the genre, they're not, you know, they're not page turners. Um, but Peter Lightheart's one of these fellas that um, when, you know, I, I joke, I have a few colleagues like this, when God was handing out brains, you know, some people got in line twice. Um, he's, he's, he's one of those guys um, who just happens to have one of these unusual masteries of not only the biblical literature, but he understands sort of the history of Western ideas, political theology, um, Christian liturgics, church history. He's just, he's interesting. Um, and uh, this commentary here is unlike really anything I've read, um, where he's bringing together all of his sort of learning. I'm going to talk about this with Solomon before the day's over, but all of his learning um, to bear on his reading of the biblical text, all in a Christological Trinitarian frame of reading. Um, and it's really good. I mean, like, I just, I'm like, I just, oh, that's, I, I have to remind myself I'm preparing to talk because I just kind of want to sit and read what he's writing. Um, so I, I, I commend that to you. You won't agree with everything. Um, he doesn't mind being controversial if you've read anything by Peter. So he, I, he won't like everything that you read. Um, but he's, he's well worth, uh, worth your time. Okay. So I just, I commend Peter's commentary to you. All right. Now we're back in Kings. My, my goal today is to get through a kind of aerial view of Solomon's reign. So this is going to take us all the way up to chapter 11 of 1 Kings, and it's really important um, from a narratival standpoint because you know what, what begins to happen after Solomon rolls off the scene is we begin to follow the history of the kings of both Israel, remember the northern kingdom of Israel after it splits, and Judah, the southern kingdom, in rapid-fire succession. I mean, you just kind of keep moving. And this king came along, and he reigned for 30 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he gave birth to so-and-so who reigned for 10 years, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And that's the, that's the motion and the rhythm that you have through the rest of the book. And it's why the kind of space that's created within kings for Solomon 
is really important because we're getting a long view of Solomon's reign before we get into this kind of machine gun fire of the rest of those kings of, of Israel and Judah that come after him. So I want to look at Solomon today in Kings and we'll begin today, if you have Bibles on your phones, and I encourage you, you can download all these for free, I think. Um, I'm, I'm going to roll up to chapter 2 because uh, what happens in chapter 1 is uh, it's pretty good, right? So th- this is Shakespearean stuff. Um, Oh, hey, he's right here. Um, so in chapter 1, what do we have? We have, we have King David, in effect, as a, as a lame duck king, who's still showing certain tendencies in his leadership to be at times rather ineffective. Um, slow to move, slow to make decisions. Um, you remember watching the whole scene with Absalom unfold you know, in the previous book of Samuel, and just sitting back going, what's going on here? And then Joab, his general, will seem to run renegade sometimes under King David's leadership. You're like, why does he put up with that? And there's there's strange aspects of David's leadership that I actually don't think are exemplary for... I mean, you'll see a lot of these books like Leadership According to King David. Like, well, I don't know if I want to commend that to anybody. Um, So here's David now on on his deathbed. He's, in effect, a lame duck king. And before he dies, his son, Adonijah, make, take, makes an attempt um, to uh, gain uh, the authority of the throne before King David is even dead. And not only does he have a kind of a groundswell of public support for Adonijah's rule, um, he also has a significant high priest that's supporting his that's supporting his, um, his right to succession to the throne named um, Abiathar, the priest. So this is, uh, I mean, I know this is, a, Don Menendez and I were talking about this after uh, the Sunday school last week. This, this is not a good illust- analogy, but uh, what I, I feel in 1 Kings 1 and 2, the final scene of The Godfather, right? I mean, I, I, it's, it's not quite like this, and I'm going to tell you why it's not quite like this in a second. But I feel this, because you have this sort of intense interplay there in that final scene of The Godfather, which I don't know how you feel about that movie, but I feel like it's the sort of sort of movie that gives you a, a lens on American culture, right? So here you have this final scene, and Michael Corleone's at the baptism, and, and he's having his child baptized in a very sort of sacred context, while what's happening, you know, do you, do you renounce Satan? And I do. <laughs> right, that's going on over here. Right? So, I mean, this is what's happening back and forth. And that's kind of this, that, that's the feel of what you have in 1 Kings 1 and 2. It's not, this is not clean stuff. So here you have David who's being warmed by a virgin in his bed, right? So that's happening in the first four verses. You know, I don't know how they filmed that. Um, and then you go into the next scene where now you have um, Adonijah who's, um, who's seeking to take the throne. Abiathar the priest is giving him his support. He's gaining his troops around him so that in effect he can seize it by power if need be. And everything's coming undone. Um, so that uh, Nathan uh, comes to Bathsheba and, and, or I think actually Bathsheba goes to Nathan and says, have you heard that Adonijah is, um, is wanting to take the throne? And what happens here? Well, you can see some of this in first, in first, um, in the first chapter, verse one, uh, chapter, verse 11. Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, one of David's concubines, who, by the way, was older than Solomon, who, by the way, from all intents and purposes, would it's very understandable why he would feel he would have the right to the throne. 
He's the older brother. He's the son of David. And so here we have the prophet telling Bathsheba, have you heard what's going on? Because David, our Lord, does not know it yet. So this is filled with intrigue here. And, and what happens? Well, Bathsheba and Nathan, both in a kind of wily way, reminiscent, by the way, of what you feel in the move from Isaac on his deathbed, blessing Jacob and Esau. There, there's, you're meant to feel like this sounds kind of familiar, and you're meant to feel that, I think, because the Bible tends to, especially in the Old Testament, tends to repeat patterns like this. So here you have David, who's on his deathbed, and he's infirm, and he's a lame duck, and he's, his, his, I mean, I'm not sure, um, actually, I do think this is what's going on. When they tell you that David did not know the young woman that was in the bed with him, keeping him warm, um, and again, this is, don't ask me questions about this, um, but this is... <laughs> That that statement is not not I don't think intended to give us a sense of 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 uh, David's moral high ground, right? I think it's intended to let you know that his, I mean it's it's an indication of his virility at this point in time in his life, and that's an indication of his political virility as well. Right? He's 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 not he's old and he's not able really to kind of lead um, the way in which you would want him to lead um, the, the the mental image that I have that comes to mind and I can say this because I'm, I'm not Roman Catholic but no offense to those of you who maybe flirt with that I don't know um, <laughs> uh, but uh, is uh, the, the, the final days of Pope Benedict you know you remember seeing Pope Benedict on TV sort of the final days I mean you just kind of you just think wow that's that's the vicar of Christ on earth. This is bad news, I think. Um, so I, so the, the point is, David, David is in this particular role here, and, and, and he's, he's having to be led. And he's led in, a, in an almost Machiavellian way here by, by Nathan and Bathsheba to say, hey, did you know this has happened? You need to anoint Solomon now. You need to make this happen right now. And that's what happens. David, on his being led by Nathan and Bathsheba, he brings Solomon in. He anoints Solomon as the next king, the, the one that's in succession to take the throne. And, um, and it becomes a significant problem in chapter 2. So this is what, now that's why I wanted to go to chapter 2. So in chapter 2, this is what, this is what happens in the first few verses. This is David's deathbed challenge um, to Solomon. And it's worth reading. I wanted to read this to you. When David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, we'll come back to this, but I wanted to stop here for a second. That's not phraseology, and this is there's a curiosity behind this, but that's fra not phraseology that we hear all that much in the book of Samuel as we follow the life of David. Now, we find it in the Psalms, for example. Psalm chapter um, Psalm uh, uh, 19 Right? Oh, how I love your law. I mean, Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that if you want a, a beautiful summarized statement about the supremacy and the sufficiency of God's Word, Psalm 19 is about as good as it gets. Because it's not just a kind of intellectual ascent to God's law and instruction in Psalm 19. It's also what? It's, it's an ascent of the affections. I love it. 
I, I want to taste it. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. It's better than pure gold. Um, this is what God's Word is. So it's not that David is absent speech about the Torah in his life. But in the narratives of Samuel, we don't find mention of it all that much. But here, in a fascinating turn, I shouldn't say turn, but in a fascinating moment at the end of, of David's life, here he has David, uh, Solomon on his deathbed, by his deathbed, saying to him, make sure above all else that you keep yourself to the Torah of Moses, to God's instruction. Why is he doing this? This is fueling that larger narrative that we have that we talked about last week, that the theology that undergirds Sam, Joshua, Judges, Kings, and Samuel and Kings is the theology that we find in the book of Deuteronomy, which is built on this sort of covenantal relationship between God and His people. Choose life. Well, how do we choose life? You choose life by keeping yourself committed completely and totally to the Lord and His kingship over you. You shall have no other gods before me. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. And you've heard my translation of this enough now for it to get boring. But the Lord not is one. That's an okay reading. I prefer this reading. The Lord our God, the Lord alone. No other. He's zealous and he's jealous for his people's loyalty to him and to him alone. And everything else within that covenantal relationship flows from that particular pattern of soul devotion and loyalty to Israel's God in the light of all the other uh, competing gods out there. Um, let me just say this as an aside. Um, there, there, there's some interesting literature coming out right now. Um, one that I just started reading by Michael Heiser called The Unknown Realm. Um, and, and it's not Kookieville kind of writing. This is a kind of fascinating Understanding that our understanding of what it means to be a monotheist um, might might need to be rethought a little bit. In other words, like monotheism, the way in which we tend to think of monotheism, say post the Greco-Roman world, there are no other gods. There's only one God, our God alone. Um, and I think if you read the kind of Old Testament carefully enough, and you get into the New Testament as well, you realize that 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 might be too simplistic a notion. I mean, that the recognition that there are other divine beings out there. Um, cre they're created beings, but beings nonetheless that can be described within the Old Testament as Elohim, as gods. Um, and that these gods are regional. And this is another fascinating thing. And that was when the, when the world was kind of set up, the, the, uh, power and authority was given to some of these lower G gods over certain regions of, of the known world. So, for example, this is why when you begin to read about Babylon, you'll also read about Nimrod as well. And the idea here is that within the sort of divine realm, the Creator God gives Nimrod, this is your area over here, even though Nimrod is someone... I'll just say, it's a kind of complicated world of the unseen world. right? But, this is important, all of those other lowercase g gods are part of the warp and woof of the created world seen and unseen. Um, they depend on the existence of the universe for their own existence. The, the, the Christian God, and this is where the classic theism is so important to me, and I'm growing a, a deeper affection for it as I age, um, recognizes that that's not our understanding of who God is. Um, God's being is the source of all of reality. 
God, God doesn't depend on the created world for his, his existence. God's being is the source of all things that are. There would be no Nimrod without the recognition of, of our God and our God alone. And that's very much central, I think, to the Old Testament view of Israel's God vis-a-vis the other gods. That's why when Jonah's out on the water and he says, I worship the God who made the heavens and the earth, those sailors on the boat who are polytheists, they recognize we're in trouble. Right, because this isn't just Nimrod or Asherah or Molech or some. Other. This is the God who created all that that gave that existence. Um, I didn't plan to talk about this, and now I regret it. Um, but let me, let me, let me. Can I point you to one other book on this that I think you might find fascinating? Um, a fellow named David Bentley Hart has written a book entitled "Experiencing God." Um, Yale University Press. He's an Eastern Orthodox theologian. He may be. He's this this man is fascinating, um, and he's he's written I think some really good books against what we call the new atheists that are out today, um, the Richard Dawkins, the Stephen Hawkings. If you've heard Matt Schneider preach at all in the past month, he's referred to materialism I think in every sermon that I've heard. Um, that's the that's the philosophical view that they created that the, the material world is all that there is and nothing else. Um, and that's basically the view of most of the new atheists that are out there today. And David Bentley Hart just, I mean, he, in a just sort of brilliant way shows how that's, not only are they wrong, but it's completely uninteresting. I mean, I think he, he really kind of goes after them. Um, and, but the, the larger point is, when he talks about the God that someone like Dawkins or some of these other new atheists are dismissing, he, he plays a beautiful kind of rhetorical game here that I think works. And what does he say? I'm, I'm happy to dismiss that God too. Because the God that they're talking about is some kind of demiurge God or some sort of God that's dependent on the created world for that God's existence. And Hart says, that's, that, I'm, I'm happy to dismiss that too. But that's not the God of Christianity. The God of Christianity is the source of all that is. He, he, he is, his being is not dependent on any of that. And so here you have David on his deathbed with Solomon reminding him, I think, about that central truth that that's the core of Israel's faith. Namely, no other gods. You're committed to Israel's God alone. Not just as someone who's competing out there in some divine cosmic battle with the gods of the other worlds around us, but the God whose very existence is what gives rise to all of reality. No other God but Him. And as you'll notice back here in, in 1 Corinthians 2, you'll see this language, which is very Deuteronomistic. It comes right out of Deuteronomy. Verse 4, And that the Lord may establish His word which He spoke concerning me, saying, and notice this first word here, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all of their heart and with all of their soul, there shall not fail you a man on the throne of Israel. Now, this is interesting because we have back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David that there will be someone from your progeny, from your offspring, David, that will always be on the throne. That's what we call the Davidic covenant. And here you have in, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, the conditionality of the book of Deuteronomy that's coming to play here, where now David is saying, reminding him, um, there's a promise to me and my offspring if they pay, take heed to my word. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. One of them is, before we blink 
and we get out of the book of 2 Kings, we're going to be in a time when there is no Davidic king on the throne. Um, they, they have all been exiled. They are gone. And what you have in Judah is now a kind of wasteland um, rubble, a rubble heap that reminded them of a day that's gone by. Now, in God's good providence, on the far side of the exile, another king does come onto the scene named Zerubbabel, who is an offspring of David. But the conditionality here that's going on between God and the throne of, of, of King David is certainly being played out from the book of Deuteronomy. And before we get to the end of Solomon's days, we're going to see that it doesn't work out all that well. I mean, that, that's, what, that's the theology that I think the author to Kings wants you to see. God's made a promise, but the promise flows out of the book of Deuteronomy. If you choose me, you choose life. But if you go after other gods, then you choose death. And there's no promises about you and your claims on the land that I've given you as, as a gift. Okay, so that's what you have here in First Corinthians chapter two, and then, and I will have to skip all of this here, um, but it goes, it goes, Godfather on us for the rest of this chapter, right? Um, Adonijah, who was told by David, what? I mean, by Solomon, I'm not going to kill you, but in effect, I'm going to give you the gentle paraphrase. You need to kind of keep quiet, all right? Um, and what and, and what does uh, David say to Solomon right after um, he tells him to keep the law of Moses? Uh, you need to take care of Joab and you need to take care of Shimei. Um, in fact, don't let their hairs get gray and don't let them go to Sheol in peace. Those are his final words. Keep the law of Moses and do these two guys off. Right. That, that's what David says, in effect. Um, and what do we find? We find in chapter 2 that here... King Solomon actually goes and he, and he does that. Why? Um, because these people are threats to the kingdom of God. And this is a hard word that I think we need to be very careful. i got someone here who teaches political philosophy and all this. But I think we need to be very careful how we think about the application of these things into the modern world. There's not easy moves here. But the Bible does recognize that we live in a world that's filled with um, with the kind of evil that has to be dealt with at times in ways that are at least unpalatable to what our typical instincts would be. And that's what's happening here. I, I don't know if we think about it this way, but we just prayed the Lord's Prayer together, right, in, in communion. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then what do we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we might not recognize is that implicit in a prayer like your kingdom come is a recognition of what? That when the kingdom of God does come in its fullness, it's what? Good news for some and bad news for others. And that's built, I think, very much even into the fabric of what's going on right here with Joab and Shemaiah. These are bona fide threats to the kingdom of God and Judah. And they're bona fide threats to the peace and security of the land as it gives rise in these next few chapters to the temple and God's presence among them. There's a lot at stake here. And then you have Adonijah who goes after Solomon tells him to kind of keep quiet. And then he works this, I mean, this again, very Machiavellian stuff here, right? He, he says, I'd like to marry Abishag. Well, who was Abishag? One of David's concubines. Um, and, he, and he says, that's all I want, just want to marry Abishag. And he goes to Bathsheba and he says, I want to marry Abishag. Go and talk to King David about that and, um, and broker this for me if you don't mind. And Solomon, who's already displaying the wisdom that in time we'll be, we will see more fully, 
Solomon um, hears the request from Bathsheba and he's like, Mom, you got duped. I mean, why else, and this is Jen Lutz's paraphrase, why else would Adonijah want my father's concubine than him building a, another kind of implicit case for the throne? Him asking that request is him sealing his fate. And that day, Adonijah breathed no more. Right. Um, so this is, I'm, I'm not going to try to clean this for you. I'm not swabbing the deck. All right. But I will say that you recognize that built within this, this, um, this complex of the transition of power is an understanding that the, the, the desire for the kingdom of God is a recognition that there is a reckoning that comes along with this for some. And we see it implicit and, and not implicit, explicitly here in the narrative in First in Kings 2. And then look, we're going fast. First Kings 3, you know what happens. He asks for wisdom. God gives it to him. But I wanted you to read this because this is what all of the nastiness of the past few chapters is leading up to in chapter 4. Um, verses 24 through 25. And for those of you who've read the prophets lately, see if this sounds familiar. For he, that is Solomon, he'd asked for wisdom now from God in chapter 3. He had, and, and he just, remember he demonstrated that wisdom in that wild way when the two prostitutes come to him and they're like, one, the baby, she smothered my baby dead, so I want her baby now. And, and Solomon's like, okay, we'll take care of this, cut the baby in half and give the, one half to each of the mothers, right? Um, which sounds horrible, but then it kind of works out because the true mother showed her color, her colors, right? No, I don't want the baby cut in half. She can have the baby. Your baby, right? So Solomon, right there in chapter three, is is demonstrating before um, all the people the wisdom that God had given him to judge with equity, right? Um, by the way, as an aside, I think First Kings three, that story about the two harlots coming, the two mothers and the baby, and one dying, another one being. I think that might be a kind of allegory of what just happened with um, Adonijah and Solomon in the previous chapter too. But that, I will save that for another time. All right. So here you are in chapter four, and what does he say? He had dominion over all the regions west of the Euphrates, from Tifshah to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. It's a large kingdom here, and here's the terms that you want to read. And he had peace on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelled in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, um, so east to west. And look at this line. And every man under his vine and under his fig trees all the days of Solomon. Right, so you have this kind of nasty bit in the first two chapters that creates a context for peace for this 40-year reign of Solomon. And what, how was that era of peace described? Every person gets to sit under their own vine and fig tree. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4, which are carbon copy texts. What do you have there? A promise. And now we're dealing with the mess of the divided kingdom and the, and, and the threat of Assyria and Babylon. In other words, this, these 40 years of peace, everyone sitting under their own vine, that's a memory of some distant past that we've heard about, but that does not mark our day at all. And what's the promise of the future day of universal peace when, when God raises Mount Zion and all people come to be instructed in God's Word? What's the outcome of that? And every person gets to sit under their own vine and their own fig tree and they get to drink their own wine. That's, that, that's the demonstration of what peace looks like. And you've heard me say it before, but I'll, I'll say it again. I love these pastoral agricultural images. 
Because I, th- I, don't, I don't know what your mindset is about as good as it gets. Um, you know, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, often said that, I don't know if he often said it, but he did say, um, <laughs> that people so headlong look for pleasure that when they actually stumble upon genuine pleasure, they run right past it. Right? Like, where's pleasure? And then <laughs> we're just kind of going through it. Um, the way in which the Bible loves to present the future day is by drawing on images of the past and putting it into the future. And they love, the, the prophets love to use these agrarian kind of scenes. It's, you know, walking around in your pasture and, uh, and petting your cow um, and going to check the figs to see if they're ready to be plucked today or not. And going out into the, into the vineyard and picking off that, you know, Pinot Noir grape and saying just another month and maybe we'll be able to press. Um, and that's it's it's the quality of human life lived at its fullness. And I think when I was young, like when I was my kid's age, I would have heard that and thought, oh, my Lord, it sounds awful. Um, but now, you know, it's like that that sounds about as that's, that's about as good as it gets. And that's what I think the Bible's giving us, a kind of image of this is a, a, the good life um, lived in peace without any sense of threat from those who are coming around. And they experience that in this Solomonic moment. Um, and all of this, I think, is set up so that Solomon can do what Solomon was meant to do. And that's build the temple. And he gives himself to the building of the temple. And the building of the temple here in 1 Kings, in this in chapters 6, 7, and 8, no, actually 7 and 8, the building of the temple brings up all of these resonances um, of the building of the tabernacle back in Exodus. Um, I'm going to check my time here. Oh, this is horrible. Um, anyway, we'll, and we'll come back to this. But, but what do you have back in, in Exodus? I, I, this, these are verses that, again, I teach this stuff for a living, but these are verses that I, I did not remember reading. But I was on my porch maybe six months ago or something, and I'm like, oh my goodness, look at that. I grabbed the and I said, look at this. Well, what happens? Moses finds artists in the community who are gifted and talented, craftsmen who know how to carve, who know how to work with metals, who know how to sculpt things. And the Bible says, and the Spirit of God came on them to anoint them to do their task. These artisans were inspired by God to do the artistic work that they were called to do. And we have similar language that's used here in Kings. I mean, you have craftsmen who know how to work with wood, who know how to work with metal, who know how to do artistic design. And they're all coming together to build this temple that's going to do what? It's going to be the presence of God in their very midst. I would, I would be very slow to give the theological center of the Old Testament. All right? I'd be slow to do that. I think there's multiple things going on. But if you push me in a corner and said, choose one now, I think I might say something like the promise of God's presence amidst the people of God. God promises to be with His people. And the, and the temple in the midst of the people is, is a robust commitment that God has to not be abstract from them. There's no, there's no deistic deity who's just removed now from the people watching from afar. He's in their midst. Not, and we see this in the dedicatory prayer. He's not hemmed in by the temple. We know that. Remember, Jonah found that out the hard way too, right? He's not hemmed in by the temple. But this temple is what God, in a, in a sacramental way, has given this physical thing in the midst of God's people. And he's attached his own presence. And we don't have time to read it, but read First Kings 8. That's your homework. And he says, and my name will dwell there. I mean, that, 
His saving power is the, is the context of His name will dwell there. So that here you have the people of God toiling and sweating, living life. Um, I thought about this in light of Zach's sermon today, right? The kind of things that frustrate us in our existence, in our human existence. I, they didn't have plumbing like we do back in the days, but you know, my little girl's bathroom, I've got to toil it off and have to replace the wax seal and, and it's still not draining. And I've been cursing all day yesterday about this, think about it today. And, uh, and think about this, you know, in the ancient world, they have the same, just problems of life. How do we eat? How do we survive? But there's the temple in the midst of it. Um, and even if I can't see it, I know it's in that direction. And that temple is a physical promise that God has given to His people that I'm with you. And if you give yourself completely and totally to me and no another, I will always be with you. I will never leave you. I will be in your midst. That's the horror that you experience when you read the book of Ezekiel and see the Spirit of God going out the back door of the temple out into the wilderness. That's the horror of it. Because now the promise of life in the midst of death has just left us. Because what? Because we're not doing that Deuteronomy thing. We're not doing that um, uh, uh, um, first commandment thing, no other gods before me. Which is what makes John chapter 1 so profound. Right? Um, and the Word of God, John chapter 1, verse 14, may be one of the most important verses in the Bible, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Right? That's that temple imagery. There He is in our midst. Because the promise of God to His people to give them life is not a promise that's dependent on us primarily. God, throughout the whole of the Bible, takes it onto Himself and into His very person to be a God who gives Himself to His people by a physical presence in their, in their very midst. So Lord, thank You for the, 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 this brief Lord, theology of the temple. Um, the temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt. Jesus, You were destroyed and You came back from the dead. And our prayers are directed to You, Jesus, who then give them to the Father by the Spirit because You are our temple. And we are located safely in you, even now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.